You are listening to the ETC Group Podcast. everyone and welcome to our discussion. I'm Zahra Moulou based in Montreal. I work with the Etc. Group on technology assessment in Africa. Today's podcast topic is very broadly technology. Etc. Group works on monitoring the impact of emerging technologies and corporate strategies on biodiversity, agriculture and human rights. But what is technology? Is it good? Is it bad? Today, I'll be speaking with my colleague, Jim Thomas, the executive director of Etc. Group, about his thoughts and insights on technology. So, Jim, let's begin with what seems to be a very obvious question, which is, what is technology? Yeah, what is technology? Um, so, you know, I think often when people think about the word technology, they think of certain types of modern high-tech technologies, whether that's you know, phones, computers, airplanes, biotechnology, or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, obviously technology is much more than that. And we're, we're really surrounded and saturated with technologies, um, many of which uh, we, we don't even almost recognize as technologies. You know, I'm sitting in front of a window right now. Well, a window is a technology for looking through, through a wall. That's what it is. Um, I'm wearing clothes. Clothes are a sort of technology for keeping people warm and sheltered. And, um, you know, in a house, a house is sort of a technology for dwelling in protection from the elements and so forth. So, you know, writing, writing is a technology of communication across time and space. We can, we can see many things around us are actually technologies. So yeah, what is a technology? I think a common definition of a technology is that it's a tool or an artifact um, that allows us to, you know, solve a problem or, or do something. Um, I think it's more complicated than that, actually. One of the sort of important parts of the word technology is, is techne. It's the same root that you get in technique. And, um, you know, in a technology, often what you have is a, a series of techniques that have been sort of made actual, sometimes in a material object or in a sort of system of organization, um, such that it sort of does something in the world by itself with a certain level of autonomy. So. If I can give an example, a, a slingshot. A slingshot, you know, it throws a stone very far. Um, but in some ways, it's a set of techniques of where you, you take a stone and you pull it back and then you launch it very fast. Um, all of that is brought together in the technology of a slingshot. And so it, it does all that for you in a way. So there's, it's almost like a, also a set of processes embedded within something. And it's yeah. very broad. It's a very broad definition that you're giving from writing to slingshot to complex systems. Um, you know, we often think of technology as belonging to the so-called modern world, the Western world. Uh, but there are also other technologies. And we, ha we rarely hear people talk about indigenous technologies um, or even we rarely think of technologies as being universal. Um, can you talk a bit about that sort of bias towards thinking about technology as you know, coming from a specific place, a, a particular system of thought? Yeah, well, I think, you know, when we think about technologies as these kind of modern high-tech technologies, um, you know, that, that's the effect of a particular culture um, and, and indeed an industry. We have technology industries that, that 
create that story of technology that it's these high tech sort of glitzy things that, that, that are sold to us regularly. Um, but yeah, the, the, you know, every agriculture, for example, is full of technologies. The, the technology of the plow, the technology of, of the hoe, the technology of, of, of seed winnowing, for example. All of these are uh, tools and techniques brought into material objects that uh, uh, you know, allow agriculture to happen. Um, water technologies. I think about um, how many traditional cultures have ways of holding and storing water, of, of distributing water, of sanitizing water. There's amazing mm -hmm. technologies where you know, it's just silver bowls, leaving it there for a period of time, the water becomes clean. Um, that's a technology. It's a traditional indigenous technology that's been around for many years. Um, and so, yeah, indigenous and traditional communities have many technologies and uh, you know, technologies of writing. As I say, writing is one of those technologies that we don't even see as a technology these days, but it's very much a technology. And, and, it's, and it structures and it changes and gives us power. And it's also very transformative. I mean, writing has transformed so much of the world. And so as you know, think of things like cartography or map, maps as a kind of technology. Um, there's also quite a sort of mythical dimension around technology. It seems as if the very word sort of makes people freeze up and maybe defer when otherwise they'd be more critical. So how do people project, you know, positive change onto technology or project authority onto scientists and technical experts? Well, I think there's, there's something that's happened um, very much in the last few centuries which is the conflation of science and technology science is is different systems of knowing but when we say science these days we often mean a very particular kind of science the scientific method the sort of cartesian scientific method um, and and that there's been i think often a very deliberate uh, conflation of that with technology and engineering we hear about stem science technology engineering medicine um, you know, as being sort of one one thing, and they're not disaggregated. So, as much as there is a, a certain expertise and authority that's lent to science, a certain kind of science, mm -hmm. you know, so we're told that technology carries that science, that scientific authority and expertise, both by which it's meant kind of high tech science. Um, uh, sort of philosophers of science, technology, and society will talk about techno-science, the sort of technologies and the sort of science that build up each other in a way, as opposed to, you know, the sort of knowledge of communities, which is also science. Science just means knowledge, or the sort of indigenous or, or bottom-up technologies that, that are always being innovated, but aren't in that kind of specialized techno-science bubble. Um. At etc. Group, you know, we often talk about technology as not inherently good or bad, but as political. And so you've sort of, you're sort of touching on that by, you know, talking about this conflation of science and technology, a particular definition of science. Um, how can you explain uh, this definition of technology as not good or bad, but as political? Yeah, there's many ways to go into this. And, and um, I think it's useful to start with that idea that a technology is really a set of techniques brought together. I think it's understood that techniques are political. Like, you know, the way in which you do something has built into it all kinds of power relations, for example. Can you give an example? Sure. Well, so, so for example, there's this, I'm going to do this in two ways. One is the sort of composition of a technology. So take something like a computer, a, a politically neutral thing. Well, you could say 
it's brought together from a whole series of processes, whether that's mining rare earth materials, um, large amounts of energy production that are required, uh, the sort of concentration of capital in order to design uh, the, the chips and the certain types of knowledge you require, all of those processes that make possible, say the personal computer on your desk, um, have a certain political cast to them. Like you require certain systems for that to happen. The, the um, philosopher of technology Langdon Winner talks about nuclear power is a very good example of this. Um, that in order for a nuclear reactor to be operated, you need to have um, systems of military protection. You need to have systems of extracting thorium and, and, and all sorts of radioactive materials. That the that technology cannot exist with a certain political reality behind it. So that's one way in which a technology is, has an inherent politics built into it. All, all how it's produced and how it's, how it's kept and how it's run has a politics. Another way is that um, you know, the use of a technology has built into it certain power relations. So one of the clearest examples of this is a technology like a gun. Very clearly, if somebody's using a gun, the person who holds the gun and points it, whether at a living animal or a target, has power over the thing that it's pointing at. Now, that's a very specific example, um, but it's built into the technology. The technology gives that power to the user. That's also true, actually, about something like a motor car. Um, the person who holds the steering wheel has certain types of power over the other people in the car, over the people around the car. That person using the technology is given certain power over other people around them. And it's not just true for these two examples. As you begin to look at, you know, whether it's genetically modified seeds or, or whether it's certain types of um, surveillance technologies or, or whatever, you see these kind of relations of power that are built, physically built into uh, our technological objects. Sometimes those are intentional, as in a gun. Sometimes those are just the sort of effect of assumptions of the people who designed them. This is something that uh, disability campaigners really point to. They, they point to how a bus that they cannot get onto because they don't have the same, same set of abilities as, as many other people exclude them. That's not because the bus was trying to be exclusionary of disability pe disabled people. It was because there were a set of assumptions about what makes a human being that were built into the design of those, those technologies. And this is why often technologies that are built by people who are white or male or, or have other sort of dominant traits in, in, in society exclude others who are already marginalized. You build in those marginalizations because assumptions about what makes a human being or what the person is using this gets built into the technology. And in that way, the technology is deeply political because it exacerbates the differences between the marginalized and those who have power. Yeah, I was just going to, to quote uh, Pat Mooney, who was the founder of... Uh... Uh, etc. group, and who said the powerful technology introduced into an unjust society will always increase the gap between the powerless and the powerful. Um, but it seems like, you know, we live in a world in which those power relationships are so much established that it seems inevitable that the technologies that we see coming out today uh, that are well-financed, let's say, uh, from certain industries would inevitably increase, increase that gap. Yeah, I mean, so that, if what you just said there is what in etc. we call Mooney's Law, this idea that a powerful technology introduced into an unjust society will uh, increase the, the, the gap between the powerful and the powerless. 
Um, and of course, the, the kicker there is, when did you last see a just society? You know, we, this is an unjust society and we're seeing ever more powerful technologies. And, and those kind of questions that have to be asked when you have a new technology being brought into society, it doesn't just drop on society from above, it's being developed and created. Whose interests is it likely to serve? Who's, um, who's going to get to use that technology and who's going to be excluded in the process? These sets of questions are deeply political questions. And, and that's why at Etcetera Group, we, we argue for technology assessment. As important as developing open technologies and accessible technologies um, is being able to politically access, assess the impact. Yeah, I'm going to come in uh, a little bit further on. I will ask you more about technology assessment because as a whole, you know, it's, it's a whole topic of, you know, how do you do technology assessment? What does it actually mean? Just, you know, going back to technology and technology development more broadly, uh, would you say that technological development is inevitable? Yes, absolutely. People develop technologies all the time in, in the nature of, of, you know, working with their environment, growing food, living together and finding new ways of being together. I think technological development happens all the time, has always happened all the time. Um, but it's interesting then to say, what kind of technologies that, you know, there are technology theorists like Lewis Mumford who would say there are different strains of technology. There are democratic technologies and there are authoritarian technologies. There are technologies that, as they come into society, lend power to authoritarian systems and others that democratize. Um, you know, the bicycle is a technology I think of as being very democratic. Uh, it, uh, it's, it's fairly easy to access, it's fairly easy to repair, um, it lets us live in ways that are more convivial, uh, whereas, you know, you might say that the, the private motor car um, has, has more authoritarian tendencies. In order for it to operate, you, you need to separate space and, you, and certain people become more powerful, um, you know. So you can start to see these different strains of technology. And this is where it goes back to the question of traditional indigenous technologies. Often those technologies that are sort of named low tech, um, what they are are democratic technologies. They work well with uh, more community-based societies. Could you ever have a situation where a technology that's created in, as a democratic technology can then become used in a more authoritarian way or instrumentalized in some way? Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe that's a, technologies combine all the time. The example of genetically modified seeds might be that. Uh, you've got there biotechnology companies who are taking technologies that have been developed over centuries by farmers um, that are sort of open source, if you like, and have been shared and fit to the land and fit to their own place and fit to community food systems. Um, and, and then they're, you know, they're adding additional elements to it that, that allow it to work with pesticides or, or fertilizers in mm. ways that become more privately controlled and, and then get used to control farmers and food systems. So, yes, for sure. And that, you know, that this sort of speaks to why there needs to be a certain vigilance about the ongoing politics of technology. Uh, there needs to be systems in place to be watching what new technologies are emerging that may have disproportionate impacts on people's power and rights, on the environment and so forth. We need to have a certain level of sort of social surveillance of technologies. Mm -hmm. 
Accenture Group has been, you know, doing a lot of work on emerging technologies over the years. Um, but those who are not so familiar with, with the work we do are quite surprised to hear about some of the, the less the less known technologies that, that we work on. And so can you give some examples of new and emerging technologies that Accenture Group is now paying attention to and monitoring? Sure. Um, Accenture Group has for many years been watching developments in biotechnology, genetic engineering, which has now become known as synthetic biology and gene editing. These are different ways of, of changing the genetic level, genetic makeup of living things. But what we're increasingly seeing is that the technological platforms are, are, are coming together. Um, that is to say, in order to modify life at the scale of genes and so forth, you need to have a, a level of control over information. That's information technology. We see artificial intelligence and, and developments there. You, you also need to have a, a level of control over physical matter. So there you have developments in nanotechnology where uh, increasingly technologists are changing and rebuilding materials at the level of atoms. And so this coming together of all of these technologies then creates all sorts of things. Um, so one thing that we're seeing um, have been really for about 20 years is an attempt to bring together these powerful high-tech platforms nanotechnology biotechnology information technology uh, artificial intelligence and cognitive technologies into a common platform that, that then you can get really quite unusual technologies and this is now increasingly being called the fourth industrial revolution by groups like the world economic forum um, and so we're seeing, you know, emit strange hybrids of uh, living genetically modified organisms behaving more like robots or, or being able to program with DNA and things like that. Can you give an example of one of those? So can you give an example of, let's say, within synthetic biology? First of all, what is synthetic biology? And then, you know, what would be a technology that works in the way you've described? So synthetic biology... Um, is, is sort of a, a buzzword for the next stage of genetic engineering. And, and what it involves really is synthesizing the parts of life, so whether it's genes and RNA, and uh, in order to, to make quite novel new living organisms that are sort of built from the bottom up, if you like. One of the ideas under synthetic biology is that ultimately living organisms have a code, DNA, which you could reprogram in the same way you reprogram a computer. Now, there's, there's all sorts of problems with that idea, but that's the kind of organizing metaphor. So if you can uh, design the DNA code on a computer such that it would, you know, the DNA code of a bacteria would start producing plastics or start producing vanilla, um, then you can create little cells that become like factories, plastic factories, vanilla factories. And uh, so this then becomes a new manufacturing paradigm. And so that's a lot of what's happening in the synthetic biology world. Increasingly, in order to redesign these little cells, these sort of little molecular factories, um, synthetic biologists are using artificial intelligence. They're taking massive amounts of genomic information, that is the, the, the codes of DNA from many different organisms, feeding it all into large AI systems and then asking those AI systems to develop new living organisms. Like, can you come up with the codes that will make a particular flavor or the codes that will make a particular color dye or something like that? And so we're now seeing uh, in this area that's known as biointelligence, that 
genetic engineering of organisms is not being done by people anymore. It's being done by large artificial intelligence systems and robotic genetic engineers. Biointelligence companies are basically saying, let's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll ask the artificial intelligence to come up with the design of the DNA, we'll ask the robots to build it, and there we have a living organism that will make whatever we want. And increasingly, human beings aren't very involved in that process. Um, and that raises uh, it's a lot of power. And there's a real fight between particularly China and the US to dominate biointelligence. But it also raises some major safety questions. If, if you don't even know how you're making these organisms, if it's not understood by any human being, then when something goes wrong, it's going to be hard to clean it up. On the other hand, people might argue that, you know, having those kind of, having that potential to, to create, let's say, synthetic substances like vanilla, as you mentioned, might actually be cost effective. And also, given that we are sort of using so many resources on the planet, given the environmental catastrophe, are, are there not benefits to having this kind of uh, technology? And this is exactly why we need technology assessment. Um, because you can make that claim, and the companies do make that claim, that if you could make, for example, synthetic vanilla, which they're making out of synthetic biology cells, then you're able to produce it more cheaply and so forth. But obviously, there's other questions. What does that do for vanilla farmers in places like Madagascar? And in turn, in turn what does that do to the, uh, the environment that those farmers actually protect, which is forest environments? Um, you have to sort of interrogate the implications of this technology beyond the claims of those who make it. Um, and that's something that anyone looking at technology has known for years, that the, in fact, the Plato wrote about, or Socrates, I think it was, talked about how, you know, the inventor of a technology is not best placed to determine the impact of that technology. And he was talking about writing, the inventor of the technology of writing, and talked about how actually writing had had all these, uh, these problematic effects. That's even more true when you're writing DNA or, or you're rewriting our society through technological means, which is increasingly what's happening through uh, you know, artificial intelligence being applied to communications and, uh, and, and other areas too. So it's as technological abilities drive production, drive how we have politics and discussions, we need to have the capacity to evaluate those technologies, to see if they are authoritarian, if they have unfair impacts on, um, on people who are already marginalized, um, and to try and understand the sort of built-in politics of those technologies. So that's what you mean when you say technology assessment is sort of an evaluation of all the impacts of the technology, but also how it was created and who is behind it. Um, can you Talk more about that process, you know, how, how do you do technology assessment? Um, well, actually, people do technology assessment all the time. And it's interesting when you, you know, most people have some level of their assessing the technologies that they're interacting with. They're deciding, you know, should my children have cell phones and or should they have cell phones, but only in these occasions? Um, should I be eating genetically modified food or do I feel comfortable eating pesticides? Or, you know, people are continually sort of assessing the technologies they come in touch with. And there's a lot of very good um, sort of common sense assessment that goes on all the time in society and between people. Uh, what we're missing, crazily enough, is that being brought into, into governance of technologies. At the, at the level of governing technologies, 
there is an assumption that technologies are neutral, um, that those who bring them to society always understand them and have the best interests at heart, um, and that there won't be unforeseen effects. So sometimes there are, there are uh, rules that will mitigate against some of the worst effects of the environmental effects or the health and safety effects. But in terms of how technologies change power relations, maybe push people out of jobs or de-skill people or, or make some people more powerful than others, there's really no governance mechanisms in place to track that and to try and rebalance it in a fair way. Um, what we're saying is we need those mechanisms upstream. As much as governments put money into trying to promote technologies as engines of the economy, they need to be putting effort into assessing technologies which may disrupt and unfairly impact uh, large swathes of the population. But what, what does exist now at the level of, of, of governance in terms of technology assessment or evaluation or even just consideration of new technologies? What does exist at the moment? Well, I think, you know, part of what's happened is um, we have specific technology, like technology-specific regulations or governance frameworks around particular technologies where society has run after those technologies and said, well, wait a minute, this, this is this safety questions or, or, or this seems to unfairly impact workers. And so they're kind of technology by technology. It's, it's often can can you give an example of one of those? Yeah, I mean, the global, the, you know, global agreements on biosafety of genetically modified organisms or the... Uh, you know, the rules around um, pesticides and, and, and toxins in food. But what's interesting is we're in an era now where technology as an engine of the economy is so powerful. The most powerful actors in our economy are now technology companies. And they're driven by an ideology of disruption. It's seen as a good thing to disrupt society. You know, the idea oh. you know, from Silicon Valley, the ideology is move fast and break things try and upturn things in order to get creative disruption that will make, make new sources of funds and money. The idea that disruption is a good thing can only be true if you're very uh, well insulated against the shocks and the pain of social disruption. Right? It's only true for the, the richest and most powerful people. For most people who are trying to deal with, uh, with the effects of change and are already highly vulnerable, disruption is a threat. Um, and so, you know, there's, a, there's this perverse idea that we want disruptive technologies. We want to upturn our societies continually and make money along the way. We should be able to say disruptive technologies will always benefit a small number of people, but are likely to have big downsides. And we have to start from protecting those who they're going to be impacted. Um, can you talk a bit more about the, the issue of governance? Is there an example of a particular technology that's being discussed at the international level, in particular uh, fora, that's in which this uh, need for technology assessment is coming up, or in which groups are trying to, to push for technology assessment? Sure. I mean, one, I, I talked about synthetic biology earlier, and, and that's one area. Um, within synthetic biology, there's a technology which is gene drives, and the Cetra group has been working with other groups to draw attention to gene drives. Gene drives are a genetic engineering technology where an organism is genetically engineered with a new trait, um, but then that's driven through an entire population. So you're not just engineering the single organism that you change in the lab. 
but it automatically passes on that change to all of its offspring so that you engineer an entire population. It's population scale engineering. Um, there has been a lot of work and activity by civil society groups to, to bring the question of gene drives to the International Convention on Biological Diversity um, and other places to say that this has real impact on people's rights. This isn't just about safety. There are big safety and biosafety issues, but this is also about impacting the rights of farmers and of uh, people whose land is going to have, are gonna have gene drives introduced to them. Within the Convention on Biological Diversity, there's now a recognition that there needs to be horizon scanning of new technologies, assessment of new technologies. And Sorry, what is horizon scanning, just quickly? Seeing what new technologies are coming. Like, you know, sort of when something like gene drives hits, it's not too late. That you see it coming, that, that, that there is then a process of seeing the technology coming, putting it under an assessment framework, and monitoring the effects afterwards. Because a body may say, this is perfectly fine, and then new information comes up later. So monitoring is as important. So the Convention on Biological Diversity is actually discussing how to have a framework for horizon scanning assessment and monitoring of synthetic biology. And even there's a question, maybe this should happen across all technologies that can affect biodiversity. You know, really, when you go to many of the drivers of biodiversity loss, um, they have a technological underpinning to it. Even, even climate change, the, you know, the massive amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now, you can take straight back to the industrial revolution and the increase in cars and airplanes and so forth. So, you know, unless we're carefully monitoring our technologies, watching what's coming, assessing them and, and keeping that monitoring going, we're going to have new drivers of destruction of biodiversity, but also destruction of human rights and, and so on. But, and with technology assessment, let's say if that process were to take place, if there was a scanning, a horizon scanning of new technologies that are probably going to arrive and disrupt, but also an assessment of the benefits, the impacts, the, the people funding it, what results would we have from that process? Well, I think it's possible to do technology assessment in a way that doesn't transform anything. And that would be a problem. You know, if it was literally just looking at what are the health effects that would, that would protect a few things. Um, what's really important is that the assessment has to be driven from below. Uh, you know, if you go back to Mooney's law, the, the idea that uh, when you introduce a powerful technology, it exacerbates the, the gap between the powerful and the powerless. You're only going to understand the impact if you involve those who are most marginalized, those who are probably going to be most affected. And they're going to bring really the most useful knowledge. They're gonna be able to see how this technology will play out in their food systems, in their health systems, in their, in their systems of decision-making. Um, and so if to have a meaningful technology assessment, you're gonna to have to uh, empower uh, indigenous peoples, local communities, uh, farmers, fisher folk, and others to, to be able to assess and speak about these what are really ultimately political changes and economic changes. So, you know, what, what on the one hand seems like a very um, sort of technical request, we want to be able to assess technologies, is actually quite a political request. And is there any resistance to that? Are there, you know, are there groups or people who don't want technology assessment to be done in that way? Absolutely. I mean, you see it in the international negotiations where technology assessment is put forward, that some of the most powerful northern countries, uh, you know, the US, Japan, Australia, 
would like to see that language disappear. So finally, um, just going forward, uh, people who are listening, how could they, if they were interested in this topic or interested in getting involved or, or knowing more about the issue, what, where can they go? Well, I think, you know, what's many people are involved in campaigns and struggles and movements all around the world. I think even just beginning to ask the question about how do, how do technologies affect the thing we're focused on, the, the struggles we're involved in, the, the campaigns we're involved in, how, how are these, uh, you know, how are these technological, how's the politics technological, that would be a, a useful start and to begin making these, these connections. Um, obviously, at Etc. Group, our website, www.etcetragroup.org, we, we try and put more information about um, new technologies and, and what to be, you know, what's coming on the horizon, and that's a place to, to start. And yeah, I think, I think in sort of bringing the politics of technology into, into our many different uh, campaigns and struggles uh, will, over time, become more and more important. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jim. And thank you to everyone who's listening. Uh, for more information about uh, what Etc. Group does, you can visit our website at www.etcgroup.org.